This is the first in, just give me a second here, sermon, good. This is the first in a new series that we're starting called Detox. Detox, and if you know that word, you're saying, okay, that's usually with reference to your body. And, you know, if you watch some of these TV shows, I think, uh, does anybody still watch Dr. Oz? Dr. Oz, you ever heard of Dr. Oz? Wow, some, a lot of young people here, I guess. Anyway, Dr. Oz and different television shows, and they'll teach you how to detox your body and clean out your this and clean out your that, and you put all kinds of crazy vegetables in a smoothie, and you detoxify yourself, and it's a new year, and you can start fresh and clean up your... And, and so playing on that theme, I wanted to talk about detox the way the Bible talks about detox. Uh, referring to the mind and the body and the soul over the next three weeks, okay? And uh, again, this is in lieu or in light of the fact that we're in a new year, uh, at least by our calendar. What does the Bible have to say about these areas? And the answer is a whole lot. So I thought it would be a great time to talk about it with you, okay? And we're going to start today with the mind, with the mind, probably my favorite uh, subject of the three. And the passage of scripture that we're going to be reading from is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, all right? So for those of you who are new to the Bible, I often pump the free Bible app called YouVersion, Y-O-U version. And uh, they even have a kid's version, which is excellent for little kids. And this is a uh, Great way for you to get acquainted with the Bible, any version you want, any language you want. Uh, they have all kinds of video aids to help you understand what you're reading, to help you understand what's a Galatian. You know, you read the book of Galatians, who's a Galatian? You read the book of Corinthians, what's a Corinthian? I never heard that word before, okay? So it's a wonderful application for you to get your hands on, you put it on your tablet, your smartphone, whatever. Uh, so we're reading from 2 Corinthians, the Bible's New Testament, chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away, I beg you that when I come... I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You say, what in the world is going on there? The context is interesting. Uh, Paul is writing what really is his third letter to this church. We don't have the first one. 
What we read as 1 Corinthians is actually Paul's second letter, and there's a little tip-off in 1 Corinthians to tell you that. So this really is third letter to this church. He loved this church. He had a part in, in starting this church, and um, he is addressing this church in this second letter, and he's being quite direct with them in this passage. And it is because there are certain people within the church milieu there in Corinth who were attacking Paul. And they were attacking his leadership. They were attacking his credentials as an apostle. They were attacking his, his, his person. And um, he, he alludes to this. He says, I who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward, away, uh, toward you when I'm away. And so th there was this, this idea from these people, oh, this, this Paul, you know, he loves to be harsh with us, but, but when, he's, when he's with us, it's like he's a different person. And they called him a two-faced kind of person. They called him a false apostle. They, again, challenged who he was as a leader and who he was as a person. Uh, just as an aside, you may relate to that. If you've ever led anything, <laughs> you've probably been attacked by one or two people or maybe more. I can tell you as a pastor uh, for the last 20 years, I could very much relate to what Paul is saying. Uh, my wife and I have been doing this for well, about 20, 20 years straight full time and plus all the lay, lay volunteer experience we had before. And you run into this kind of thing where, where people do challenge you as a person, as a leader. And so it's in this context that Paul drops in some truth relating to the mind. So I want to give you three principles that he puts out there very, very fast to detox your mind. Now, for those of you who are watching on Facebook or who will listen uh, on Podbean or iTunes where we have our podcast. Uh, some of you who are watching, listening, you're, you're not Christians. You're coming from a different background. I'm going from the, the premise uh, that not everything we think about is good. Okay, I'm going from the idea that the mind does need a detox and not everything that everyone thinks about is good and healthy and pure all the time. And I think even the atheist would agree uh, on that, uh, that idea. So that's where I'm coming from, just so that you understand. So three principles to detox your mind. And number one, there is a big difference between the world's view of what you think about and what I think about and the Bible's view. And by the world, I mean not the globe. I don't mean the physical planet. I mean the way that the broader non-Christian culture thinks. The world, the, the Bible would talk about it in that sense. The, the, the world of unbelief, the world of people and of ideas that are not founded uh, through God and through his word. This is the term that the Bible uses for the world, okay? And I don't mean to be harsh there. I'm just telling you that's the term that's used. So there's a big difference between the world's way of understanding what we think about and the Bible's way. So in the world's view, you could put it this way, anything goes. So anything that you think about that's your business. And there's no limits. There's no limitation. You can think about what you want to think about. Nobody has any business telling you what to think about because that would be trying to control you. And so whatever, 
And it, what, if you're thinking about things that are, you know, garbage in, well, garbage in. If you, whatever it is that you want to think about and where you want to dwell and where you want to meditate and where you want to spend your time thinking about, that's your decision. And anything goes, there's no holds barred. And we can see that uh, even in the place that we're standing. I mean, when people come to movie theaters to inundate their minds with all kinds of thoughts, right? And we have a, uh, even sometimes an emotional connection to a silver screen. And we see things on a screen and we meditate on those things and we think about those things. So we make that choice to put whatever we want in and in a movie theater with you know 16 screens like this one, they'll put all kinds of stuff on the screen, doesn't matter what it is, as long as people pay and as long as people come, they're gonna put it on, right? So that's, that's the view of the world, it's whatever you want. Now, some will go so far as to say, well, you can think it, but don't do it. So there's a sort of a look, but don't touch. So, you know, if a person, uh, it's probably not a good idea for them to actually go and commit adultery, but they can sure think about it all they want. Look, but don't touch. You know, you, you hate that person so much that you, 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 you think about hiring a hitman to get rid of the person. Well, you can think about it all you want, just don't do it, look but don't touch. And some may go so far as to say, yeah, it's not good that you're thinking that, but just don't do it. That's the world's view. The Bible's view, at least according to this, this text that we're looking at, is we need to be thinking about what we think about. So there needs to be an awareness and a self-policing of what is going on upstairs and what's going on right between your ears. And Paul uses this term, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There's a self-policing that he is preaching there. So it's not anything goes. You need to think about what you think about. Uh, I like the way that Dr. Phil says it. You ever watch Dr. Phil? I still watch him. And what does he say? He says, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Because he sees over and over and over again, you know, the way people live. It's what are you thinking? And the Bible in some ways would agree with that. Think about what you think about, there needs to be a self-policing that is happening if you're going to go by what the Bible says because, and this is the second principle, the battle of good or evil, and I say good or evil, not good versus evil because what goes on in our mind is sometimes an either or. The battle of good or evil, of truth or lie, takes place right up here, right between your ears. That is the primary battleground of your life is in your mind. And the language that Paul uses here is really interesting. He's, he's not talking just about, well, you know, there's a segment of people who are challenging me and who are attacking me as a, as a leader and so on. No, no, he's, he's using language that is, is violent. I mean, he says, wage war, weapons, fight, demolish, take captive. That is very, very aggressive language to, to deal with people who are calling him names. 
So he's, he's going way, way, way beyond just what's happening in his immediate situation. And he's saying, look, we don't play the same way. These people who are attacking me, and he uses the word we, probably referring to him and perhaps a group of leaders that were supporting him, though we live in the world, we don't, we don't operate the same way. We do not wage war as the world does, and he's talking about something broader than, well, it's just these people who are saying these things, etc. No, there's something bigger afoot here. There's a battle. There is a conflict. It's not a seen conflict, but it is a real conflict. And you have probably sensed that conflict, uh, where it's like there's, there's two things going on in your head, uh, and there's this, there's this battle that's happening, and uh, it, it's, you could think about this or you could think about that. You could, you could go in this direction or you could go in that direction. There's like a tug of war that's happening in your mind and a raging conflict. And nobody sees it, but you know that it's real. And the Bible would absolutely positively sustain this. And there is so much that the Bible has to say about what is going on in between your ears. I'm just going to give you a little bit. I'm going to do a little bit of what's called exegesis with you, okay? In Bible study, when you want to find out what a text really means, you've got to dig into the text and you've got to say, you've got to pull out what it's trying to say to you. And you do that uh, sometimes by going into the original language and inspecting what are these words mean, what did they mean to the people who read them, to the people who originally heard them preached, what did they mean to those people, what was the context, what was happening, what was the, what was the condition that, that uh, uh, necessitated the writing of this letter, and so on. You've got to do a lot of homework when you do exegesis. So I've done some exegesis of this passage for you, and I'm going to get into to some of these words that Paul uses to sustain this idea, there's a battle that's going on in your mind. And for some of you, it's happening right now. And you relate, you're bang on, you're tracking with me, bang on, and you know exactly what's being talked about here. So Paul uses this word stronghold. So he says, we demolish uh, the, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. In other words, we, we, we don't deal with this particular attack or any attack the way that the world does. We're on a totally different wavelength. So they're not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, the weapons that we fight with, again, use that, using that aggressive language, they have div divine power to demolish strongholds. That word strongholds in the language of the New Testament, it's on your screen there. It's used uh, one time and one time only in the New Testament. Nobody else uses this word except Paul. If you go to a lexicon, which is a book that will tell you what those words meant to those people in that time in the ancient world, this is the definition of a stronghold. An argument, a reasoning by which a disputant endeavors to fortify his opinion and defend it against his opponent. That is a stronghold. So in your mind, a stronghold is just that. 
there is an argument that's constantly playing in your head. There is a reasoning that's constantly playing in your head. And it's as if there's a lawyer in your head that is mounting an attack against you. You are its opponent. And it endeavors to fortify its opinion, this lawyer in your head. And it is, it is bringing you down to a place where you cannot function without this stronghold in the way. Uh, some translations use the word fortress. So it's, it's an entrenched idea in your head. And it's like this lawyer is constantly there. Every time you try to do something, that lawyer is in your head saying, you cannot do that. You're incapable of doing that. You're this, you're that. There is this constant argument that keeps you from doing the thing that you want to do, being the person that you know God wants you to be, etc. This is what this word means, and this is the way that Paul wrote it, uh, Ochiroma, okay? So he talks about these strongholds, and then he uses this word, and in our English translation, he says, we demolish arguments, arguments, and the word there is the word logismos. We obviously get the word the word logic from that. And Paul uses it in, in one other place in the Bible's New Testament. He uses it in Romans chapter 2 and verse 15, uh, talking about non-Jewish people and that even though they don't have the Old Testament, even though they don't have the law, they have a conscience. And by their conscience, they actually do the things required by the law. And so by that conscience, they will be judged. And he writes it this way. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts, there it is, their logismos, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This is uh, again an argument, like a logical argument. And Paul is saying we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We have divine power to demolish arguments. And then he uses another couple of words uh, in our English translation: a pretension only used another place in the New Testament. Again, by Paul, it's the word hypsoma. He says, we demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Uh, you see this in Romans chapter 8, verse 39. Paul talking about how nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height, that's the word hypsoma there, nor depth. So some translations of this thing in 2 Corinthians 10, they say uh, high arguments, high places. So this is, um, this is a, 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 an argument of great strength, a hypsoma, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he uses this word thought. And this is the word that I want to focus on for a few moments. We take captive, remember, self-police, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And the word there is the word noema. And he uses it in uh, five other places in the New Testament. Again, this is all Paul, and four of them are in the exact same letter. 
And when you look at this and you see how he uses this word, you say, wow, he is really trying to illustrate that there is indeed a battle that is waging war in the minds of people. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, he uses the word in talking about a person in the church who had essentially an incestuous relationship with his mother or his stepmother. And it's really kind of a gross situation that Paul addresses head on. And he's dealing with this at the beginning of the letter. And he's, he talks about how this person who, who needed to be disciplined in the first letter, 1 Corinthians, is that now they should uh, forgive this person. And he says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes, his noema, same word. So what he's saying there is, be careful that you, that you do not harbor revenge and bitterness against this person. You need to be forgiving toward this person because if you are not, it is, a, it is the traffic ground, it is the playground of Satan. That is a scheme of the devil himself when you are unable to release forgiveness to this person. We are not unaware of his noema. Where does that take place? It takes place right upstairs, right between your ears, right in the mind. And he goes on with the use of this word, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse, um, I think I put 4 on the screen, it should be 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 14, okay? And here he's talking about how Moses, uh, back in the time of the Old Testament, and he would, he would read the law to the people and his face would be bright white and then he'd wear a veil over his face. And he says, uh, uh, but their minds, the hearers of the words that Moses was preaching, their minds, there's that word noema, were made dull. So he was trying to reach them, but they're not getting it somehow. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. In other words, it's not sufficient. They're not going to be saved by, by the old covenant and by the Old Testament law. There is a dulling of the mind that happens. It, it has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Their minds were made dull as if they couldn't understand. They couldn't see. They couldn't perceive. Second Corinthians 4 and 4. Here again, he's getting very, very blunt about the work of, well, the devil in people's minds. He's saying the God of this age has blinded, not the eyes, but blinded the minds, the noema of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You say, oh, Donna, are you trying to tell me the devil's in my head? Like, it's enough of a stretch to try and, and come to grips with his existence for some. But to say that he's playing around in your head, well, here's how the Bible would lay this out, okay? And I'll be, I'll be candid with you. I find it I find it somewhat uh, amusing and disturbing at the same time 
that that church folks and people who attend church and people who endeavor to believe the Bible and so on uh, do not believe in the existence of a devil. I mean, it's very difficult to try and explain the, the work of evil and the origin of evil without coming to some type of conclusion that it has an ultimate source. It is very difficult to do that. Philosophers wrestle with the question of how do we, how do we explain when we see people do things to one another, when we see, I mean, uh, horrendous, sometimes unmentionable things that people are capable of. Uh, we, we come to a place where we start defining words and we start saying that evil exists and we start wondering, well, where did that come from? But I find it particularly, I don't know, I, I guess amusing, disturbing. I'm searching for the right words when I see folks in the church and they're woefully ignorant of this and they somehow think that, you know, the, the way that the devil works is by showing up uh, at your bedside at midnight you know, on Halloween night, and he's got a little red pitchfork in his hand, and he says, hi, 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 it's me, you know, I've come to scare you and to torment your life or something. Th this is not the way that the enemy works, at least not according to the Bible. The way that he works is right up here in your head. And what he does is he tries to influence in some ways, almost like a pepper shaker, and he tries to pepper his lies into your head. And he tries to get you to believe things that aren't true. Uh, Jesus called him the father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. Now, all of that takes place in your head. It's not something that you see. It's something that you experience. And that lawyer in your head, that's always fortifying his position against you to condemn you. You need to be careful, Paul's saying. He, you need to take that thought captive. That noema is an enemy noema. Um, so the God of this age, what does he do? He, he tries to blind the minds of the unbelieving so that when the gospel is preached to them some way, there's a numbing. They don't just don't grasp it, just don't get it. It's like foolishness to them. This is what he attempts to do. Not always successful, but he attempts to do it for sure. And then the last usage of the word in Corinthians by Paul beyond the, the 10th chapter is even more direct. He says, I am afraid that just as Eve, going back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, yeah, that Eve, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. Wow, Paul believed in Eve and Paul believed in that serpent. My goodness. I am afraid that just as there was deception that took place in her mind, that your minds, your noema, may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and they preach a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. And he's afraid that they will somehow be deceived by the cunning work of the enemy in their minds, just as Eve was deceived. There's this battle taking place. And then he uses it finally uh, in the book of Philippians, 
uh, chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, like we prayed this morning before the service, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, noema, in Christ Jesus. So this is a whole lot bigger than sticks and stones uh, will break my bones. And, you know, people are calling Paul names. He's saying, listen, you have to understand that what's going on is in your head. And in your head is the traffic place of truth or lie. There is a great book uh, that I, I would recommend that you read by a pastor by the name of Shane Pruitt. And the title of his book, Nine Common Lies Christians Believe. I'm going to read them to you. Wet your appetite a little. God won't give me more than I can handle. That is so not true. God gives you more than you can handle all the time. Because when you have more than you can handle, you depend on him. The, the, this is a twist on the passage in 1 Corinthians 10. No one, uh, when tempted, could say that God is tempting me for... No, that's James, I'm sorry. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Um, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's not the same thing as God won't give me more than I can handle. <laughs> he always gives you more than you can handle. God gained another angel. You know, many times I've heard that at funerals that I have done or participated in. There's this automatic assumption. Person passes away. Well, God gained another angel. And half the people in the room know that the person who they're burying was a scoundrel. And they say, God gained another angel. Where did we get that from? That is so not in the Bible. God just wants me to be happy. Really? <laughs> read the New Testament, there's a lot of sadness and a lot of suffering and a lot of difficulty and a lot of persecution that these people went through. God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy more than he wants you to be happy. I could never forgive that person. Yes, you could. You choose not to forgive that person, okay? It's a lie to say that you never could. Follow your heart. If I followed my heart, I wouldn't be standing here today. I don't follow, I don't trust my heart. Not very much, okay? Uh, follow your heart. God doesn't really care, or it should have been, God doesn't really care about me. Oh, yes, he does. Um, he went to the cross to demonstrate to you that he cares about you. Well, such and such or so and so will never change. Of course they'll change. We're changing all the time, sometimes for the good, sometimes not for the good. But to say that such and such or so and so will never change, that is so not true. I don't think God likes me. Again, he demonstrated his love for you by going to the cross. Believe in yourself. That's about the same as follow your heart. But when people believe these things, and this is the little lawyer in their mind who's preaching these lies to them, behind all of that, there's that, there's that battle. And that person, by believing lies, by, by not following truth, that person has been deceived. 
and that person will, will may make a particular choice or take a particular direction in life because of this little, little thing in their head that has fortified a position that sounds logical and sounds true that's completely false. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying you need to police your head. You need to think about what you think about because we have, as followers of Jesus, an ability, a divine power, he says, to deal with strongholds and arguments and pretensions and thoughts, and we have an ability to take every naima captive and make it obedient to Christ. What he's postulating there is that the Christian can actually control what they think about. And they can actually say, no, I choose not to think about such and such. I choose to think about truth or whatever I determine as truth from the Bible and so on. So this is the idea that he's getting at in this passage. And the funny thing about it is he doesn't say what the weapons are. He says they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we're reading the passage say, okay, what are these weapons? And he doesn't tell us, at least not there. But if you read Paul and you read the other letters that he wrote, you see that he has a bit of a pattern in the way that he describes these kinds of weapons. So I'll read to you some of the passages, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, same letter, previous chapter. Um, and he talks about their weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left hand. Romans chapter 13, verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, let us put aside the deed of darkness and put on the armor of light. So weapons of righteousness, armor of light. First Thessalonians 5 verse 8, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Kind of funny story for you, just popped in my head. Uh, the, the theater this morning was, was quite um, dirty. And the Cineplex, uh, they're going to wrestle with the subcontractors that they hire to clean this place. But it was quite dirty. And the manager came in and we showed her and she was not happy. And uh, she was fishing around, looking, taking pictures. And lo and behold, she found an empty bottle of alcohol behind the back row. Wow, that's the first, you know. So I was almost tempted to take a picture with me and the alcohol and put it on Facebook and say, hey, look what we're doing in church today. You know, everybody would. <laughs> so he says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. I mean, you got to have a big problem if you bring alcohol into a movie. Big bottle like this. Anyway, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So we've got weapons of righteousness. We've got the armor of light. We've got faith and love as a breastplate. We've got the hope of salvation as a helmet. He's drawing a, drawing a, a picture here. And then finally in Ephesians chapter 6, he puts all of this together. Excuse me, and he says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. He's alluding to Roman Roman soldier and the armor that a Roman soldier would wear. A belt of truth buckled around your waist, so truth protects. With the breastplate of righteousness, there it is again in place, so the, your acts of righteousness protect. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the, the, the peace of God is like those, those boots that they would wear, and it and 
and uh, they were ready for battle with the, with the footwear, appropriate footwear. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith. So faith is like a shield it, it, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. That's the only weapon that's uh, an offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. What's he saying at the end of the day? Uh, if, you, uh, if you want to understand the difference between truth and lie, if you want the truth of God in your head and not the lies of the the lies of that little lawyer who's fortifying his position in your head. You want to live free from the work and the schemes and the, the deception of Satan himself. The major offensive weapon is the practical application of the Bible in your daily life. You say, that's so boring. Well, <laughs> that's what he's saying. The practical application of the Bible in your daily life. Do you have it? If, if not, you're going to believe anything. You're gonna, that, that, that lawyer in your head is going to have the upper hand. And the more that you learn, the more that you apply, the more that you live by what the Bible teaches, and I'm talking about the practical day-to-day -day application of the Bible in your life, the more you're going to see the divine power of God in your head. And you will live and walk and think in a much more free fashion. Picture on your screen is of a guy named Tom Meyer. He has successfully memorized 20 books of the Bible. All uh, 20. I don't know what 20, but he has memorized 20. Now, he probably cheats and does a lot of New Testament because some of the New Testament books are short. Uh, but one of those books is the book of Revelation. And he is able to recite from memory, word for word, the entire book of Revelation. <laughs> That's quite a feat. Um, so I was reading uh, uh, an article where he talks about some of the tips that he has for getting the Bible into your life. And his overall theme is, if we don't use it, we lose it. If, and Paul would agree. He'd say, if you don't use it, you lose it. And not only do you lose it, you lose the battle of truth or lie in your head too. And what he would say, this guy, Tom Meyer, and you can use these, these techniques, as you can tell, I am an advocate of scripture memorization. This is a lost art. This is a lost discipline. This will get you through life. Because when you learn a verse of scripture and you like it, and you memorize it, I guarantee you, you can get your money back. I'll give you back your tithe. No, I'm just kidding. This, if I could give you a money back guarantee, you memorize scripture, God will bring that scripture to your head when you need it most. He'll pop it right back into your head. And you will make it through whatever you need to make it through for that particular moment because you took the time to use it and not lose it. And what he says is, this guy Tom Myers, he says, read the, the verse out loud. So l let me just give you some real practical stuff here. While I, while I think that we need more than Sunday to Sunday, 
And we've, we've done various things in this church over the first three years. We've done some midweek stuff, some small groups. And while you definitely need more than Sunday to Sunday, you need relationships, you need friends with, with uh, people who can build into your life, small group experiences, all that stuff. You definitely need that. And we're tracking towards things that we're going to be doing over the next few months as well. Stay tuned and we'll tell you what those are. But even if you didn't have that, you have... Sunday to Sunday, enough information to build on and to practically apply to your life. When I first got saved, I, I sat under the, that same fellow who called me about the Bible college intern and who baptized me in water, and that's all I needed. Because I sat there, I took notes on what he taught, I looked at it during the week, I built a little file, it was like I was in a classroom when he taught Sunday to Sunday. I took it very, very seriously, I would read aloud certain things that he, that he, that he preached and that I wrote down, and I learned to feed myself just with the preached word on Sunday. That was, If I only had that, I could get by. Now, I fed myself with a whole bunch of other stuff as well, and anything that they did, I just devoured it. It never was enough for me, but, uh, but the point being, you have enough just from a Sunday sermon to grow. It doesn't matter who the speaker is, as long as the speaker is teaching the Bible. I don't care if you like the speaker, I don't care if you like me or you dislike me, my job is to teach you the Bible. You may like it, but you may like the communicator or may not. That's your business, okay? My business is to be faithful to what God says. This is what you are to say. But you take that word, and there, I've, I've sat under preachers who I didn't like them as people at all. But I listened to what they had to say because what they had to say came out of this book. Do you understand what I'm saying? Put your personal stuff aside, and what is God trying to say to me through what is preached and what is proclaimed? And what this, this fellow would say is read it out loud. You've got a verse of Scripture that you like? Read it out loud and read it out loud many times so that you hear yourself read it. And this, this is really helpful if, you can, if you're not hearing impaired and you can speak. It's harder for people who are hearing, hearing impaired or can't speak. But if you can hear and you can speak, read out loud. And you will get that, that piece of scripture into your head. He says, listen as well. Listen to other people say that same verse. Listen to some of the dramatic readings of the verse. Nowadays, you can get people, even on that Bible app that I mentioned, they'll read the whole Bible to you. Just listen to it. And he says, listen to it. Read it aloud over and over again. Write it down. And I did this. And I wrote it down. And he says, write it down and just put a maximum of eight words on a line. This is his technique. And he says, write it down. So you read it out loud. You listen to it out loud. You write it down. And you meditate on it. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you sit and cross your legs and say om and hope that you'll jump up in the sky like Yoda, okay? That's not what it means. To meditate on scripture means while you're going through your day, you think to yourself, what's that Bible verse that I'm trying to learn? Oh yeah, okay. Be still and know that I am God. You're going through your day and you're thinking, be still and know that I am God. This person over here is driving me nuts. This boss just gave me a, a thing to do. I have to stay. Let be still and know that I am God. You see? And you do that. And you're just like, hey, this is working. This is not bothering me now. Be still and know that I'm God. That's, that's practical meditation. If you don't use it, you lose it. 
So if you really want to detox your head, the ultimate way to do it is through this book. But I'm not talking about, you know, uh, uh, a way of reading where you, you just sort of, you, you pick it up, you close your eyes, you open it up, you put your finger down, and you read. I'm not talking about that. If you're going to memorize a verse of Scripture, it's going to mean something to you. It's going to be practical to you. It's going to do something in your life. And when you fall in love with this book, I'm telling you, I give you, I give you a guarantee as best as I can. God will use this book to clean up your head. And he will use this book to let you walk free right upstairs, right between your ears. That's the practical way to detox your mind. If